It's Wednesday, November 13th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Soldiers in an intelligence unit with top-secret clearances were ordered by their commander to download an app that they say could endanger them. The soldiers were concerned that the app's permissions allowed it to collect substantial amounts of personal data, which caused concern that a hack could put individuals and missions at risk. Alex Horton, reporter for The Washington Post, joins us for more. Next, a split Supreme Court looks like it could be ready to let President Trump end the DACA program. The two issues at hand are whether the courts have power to second-guess Trump's action and if the repeal itself was lawful. All eyes were on Chief Justice John Roberts as the potential swing vote, but the decision will not come until next spring. Bianca Kilanton, higher education reporter at Politico, joins us for the fate of the Dreamers. Finally, Disney Plus launched Tuesday to some technical difficulties. Some were not able to access the service after paying for it, others could not access certain Star Wars titles, and some experienced long load times. But despite these initial hiccups, Disney Plus has the potential to be a real contender with new programming and tons of backlog titles from Marvel, Star Wars, Pixar, and the whole Disney vault. My producer Victor Wright joins us for what to expect from the new streamer. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Once they started noticing that this app that was mandated by the commander had a host of permissions that could identify them and identify their work in the unit, a lot of them were very caught off guard and and worried that it could spiral out of their control. Joining us now is Alex Horton, reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Alex. Thanks for having me, Oscar. Soldiers in the 504th Military Intelligence Brigade we're told last month that it was mandatory to download an app to their personal smartphones that would allow leaders to keep them up to date on training schedules and weather updates. But these particular soldiers, they're in intelligence. They started noticing a couple of weird things in the app. Most notably, I guess it has ties to another country or some subsidiary of that company is in another country. I think the quote in your article was that they were trained to be suspicious of everything. And they started feeling a little worried that they could endanger either uh, personal information of theirs or even operational security. Alex, tell us a little bit about what's going on with this. These are soldiers that they have jobs in interrogation. They collect human intelligence from sources, spies and prisoners. And then they also uh, have counterintelligence missions. So they're already sort of hardwired to know how information is collected and how information can be used or leveraged. So that's always in the back of their mind, um, even when they're using their own personal smartphones. Once they started noticing that this app that was mandated by the commander had a host of permissions that could identify them and identify their work in the unit, a lot of them were very caught off guard and, and worried that it could spiral out of their control and at some point land in uh, an adversary's hands. So when it came to you know where the information is, the company that developed the app with the unit, they're based in Tulsa, Oklahoma, but they do have subsidiaries in India. They told us that there is no overseas data stored from this app in India, but that didn't really assuage the concerns of the soldiers in this unit who feared that it could just spiral out of control no matter what the army or this company says. Some of the app permissions that were a little troubling were a lot of different things. So your calendar, it could add or modify calendar events, your contacts, it could read your contacts, find accounts on your device, modify your contacts. It mm-hmm. could obviously access your GPS location, and then it could modify or delete SD card contents or read the contents of USB storage. 
So these are all the things that were troublesome to these soldiers. They're in this field. They know how intelligence is gathered. Any nefarious actor would love to target these types of soldiers specifically for what they know and data that they might have. For cybersecurity experts, data breaches are a growing national security concern because of the way information could be used now and information that could be used later. An expert at the Aspen Security Center told me that there was a worry that this could be triangulated with other data. For instance, the big OPM data breach revealed a ton of people that had security clearances, and then there was a separate breach with medical information. So if you were to pair those together, you can find someone who knows a lot of secrets and might have a lot of medical debt, and that would be someone for a spy from China or Russia to approach and say, we can help you out if you give us some secrets. So that's a big concern here. It's not always apparent what sensitive or classified data can be used today, but tomorrow is another question. The expert also said that if they work in the Army now and another intelligence agency knows that, if they were to work for the CIA one day and facial recognition software catches them somewhere in the field, they would know exactly who they are. The commander didn't say, hey, download this one specific app. This was a contract that was done with this company, Straxis, in conjunction with the Army as well, right? And this wasn't just kind of out of nowhere that they wanted people to download this app. This is something that they've worked with this company on these types of things before. That's absolutely true. And I was in the Army, so I know how this works when they say, go download an app. And when that comes from a colonel, it's like, stamp your foot. I think you should go download this app. Turns into an order. And soldiers in the unit told me that staff sergeants and lieutenants were going around and checking their subordinates' phones to make sure that the app was installed. And they said at one point in the motor pool, they lined them up and they couldn't leave unless they showed directly to a leader that they had the app installed and then they were signed in. And that's where a lot of the soldiers separately had concerns, not just from the security aspect and how it could compromise their identity or their work, but also it raised a lot of questions about this blurring of the line of what commanders can and can't tell you to do. They can absolutely tell you, you can't use your phone on the job. You can't use your phone in formation. Put that phone away on the range as a safety hazard. But when they start to tell you what you can put on your phone and what you must put on your phone, it starts to become this discussion that sort of collides with the Fourth Amendment. Would you have the right to tell me I can do with my own phone? So that was another point of contention of was the brigade commander able to do this and should she have mandated her, her soldiers to do so? What's been the word from military officials on this now that the story has gotten out? It's been interesting because they released a statement after soldiers internally were worried about it, and it was discussed on a number of online forums like Reddit and a popular Army page called Army WTF Moments. So <laughs> once the commander saw that discussion, she came back and said it wasn't mandatory, and a statement put out by the unit said the same thing. After that, they said in the statement to me that it was, in fact, mandatory, but now it is only highly encouraged for them to download this app, which at the moment has been taken off of the Apple Store and the Google Play Store. The unit said that they would be back after, quote, pre-planned maintenance, but they were pulled immediately after the outcry began online. So the timing is a little coincidental when you talk about the fallout and then the app disappearing from the store. Alex Horton, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Oscar. The president's chilling message to immigrant communities across America left dreamers in a state of uncertainty and fear of being taken away from their family and removed from the only country they call as home. Joining us now is Bianca Kilantan. 
higher education reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Bianca. Thanks for having me. The Supreme Court heard arguments on Tuesday to consider whether the Trump administration can shut down the DACA program that shields about 700,000 young immigrants from deportation. It seemed that the Supreme Court was ready to decide along party lines with the president on this thing. Bianca, tell us a little bit about what we know. Before we went into the case, DACA backers were looking to Chief Justice John Roberts as a potential swing vote to reverse the Trump policy, partly because Roberts earlier this year in June joined the court's four Democratic appointees to reject the Trump administration's attempt to add a question about citizenship to the 2020 census. So he seems like he could be a swing vote. However, there wasn't much from Roberts today to give us hope or DACA supporters hope, that is. At one point, he even argued that the Obama policy was unprecedented, if not illegal, because of the number affected was much larger than uh, similar actions by the past administration. The Supreme Court heard about 80 minutes in this session of arguments, and there seemed to be two big issues. And one was whether the courts have the power to second-guess the president's action, whether they were going to get involved at all, and also whether Trump's repeal was lawful. What indication did we see that the Supreme Court was ready to side with the president on all this? I don't think that it's fair to yet say that they are ready to side with the Trump administration on this, but it seems like some of the liberal justices seem to endorse Trump's authority to shut down the program, but said he needed to embrace the political consequences. Specifically, Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor was the most vocal of the liberal justices, where she even said something along the lines of that this is not about the law, but about her choice to destroy lives. So mostly they wanted the Trump administration to take some authority over those political actions. And towards the end, Noel Francisco actually seemed to take up the justices on their invitation, declaring that the administration was prepared to accept the political consequences of the decision to end the program. I guess the argument was that all these DACA recipients had come to rely on this so that they can continue to work and not be in fear of deportation. Sotomayor had said that the president was telling DACA eligible people that they were safe under him and that he would find a way to keep them there and that he hasn't. And this is kind of a reversal of all of that. That was part of the argument, too, though, that we heard from Justice Roberts that this whole thing wasn't always about deportation also, but the eligibility for benefits, like working in the U.S. illegally. So that was one of the other kind of things that signaled, well, maybe they might side with the president. So it is about the benefits at the end of the day and the work permits. They cited a lot about the people that rely on those immigrants. So they, Justice Breyer, he brought up all the amicus briefs from businesses and education groups and home builders associations and labor unions. And uh, was talking about how the Trump administration may not have fully explained why they canceled the program and not have taken the entire effect that it could have had on all these people that are on the outside, that are not specifically dreamers, but are affected by their absence, if that makes sense, if they lose their work permits. However, it didn't seem like any of the other justices were having it. But surprisingly, most of the argument, I think, surrounded around whether or not the Supreme Court even had jurisdiction over the case. Some were convinced that they were, but in the very beginning, like basically half of the time Francisco spent arguing was focused on whether or not the Supreme Court had jurisdiction. And they were arguing, no, you do not have jurisdiction. Part of that argument was that there's no legal basis for the courts to review it because it's an executive branch decision to drop this program that itself 
was set up through executive action by the prior administration. So that's kind of where they were going with that. It's like, this is all executive action. So the courts have no say in this. That was the main argument from the Trump administration side. But on the other side, Olson, who was the Solicitor General previously, actually was arguing on behalf of saying that there are tons of people that this is affecting outside of just the dreamers. And so that's why it comes under the Supreme Court's jurisdiction. What uh, reaction have we heard from President Trump? Because I know he sent out a tweet about this. After the oral arguments, I have not heard much. But however, Congress has reacted. The Democrats came together and had a briefer after the Supreme Court hearing this morning. And a few of the senators were actually in the courtroom. Senator Dick Durbin was there. Senator Menendez was there. And Rep. Joaquin Castro was in the hearing. So they got to hear the oral arguments firsthand. And when they came out, they actually said that the next move for Congress is that Senators Dick Durbin and Bob Menendez will be bringing forward H.R. 6 for a unanimous consent vote. So hopefully they're looking to bring that piece of legislation that was passed in the House earlier this year to the Senate floor. But we can't really know whether or not Mitch McConnell will take it up. H.R. 6 would create a pathway to citizenship for those DREAMers and uh, TPS recipients. Bianca Kilantan, higher education reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. My name is Jeff Goldblum. The name of the show is uh, The World According to Jeff Goldblum. Be forewarned, I'm in the show a lot. I'm sort of fascinated by a lot of things. Joining me now is my producer, Victor Wright. Thanks for being here, Victor. Thank you. We're going to be talking about the launch of Disney Plus on Tuesday. It seems like it's on its way to be a huge success, although was snagged by some technical issues on the launch day. One of the lines in one of these articles that I, <laughs> that I read, just have to read it. It's called Disney Plus, but some are calling it Disney Minus. And that's just because of all the complaints that were going on about what happened. There was all sorts of reports, thousands and thousands of reports that started surfacing around 7 a.m. New York time that people were having problems logging in. And once people did log in, they were having problems streaming some of the content. Victor, what happened? So around 7 a.m. New York time, around 6,900 reports came in saying that they were having issues logging in. By 7.30, it had plateaued at around 7,000. And basically, the reports were saying that users were able to buy Disney+, Plus, but they weren't actually able to log in. When they were able to log in there'd be an error icon with mickey mouse and pluto in spacesuits on a little asteroid saying we're having an issue please exit the app and try again people were reporting that once the service did load properly they got on there some titles that were under the star wars category were unavailable then it got them to a blank blue screen that just said sorry something went wrong please try again a lot of people were pretty pissed off about this i mean it's launch day for this kind of fumble to happen. They said that some load times exceeded 30 seconds. It just seems like it was an overwhelming amount of people that were trying to log on that really was the problem. Well, and that's what Disney is saying. They tweeted out basically saying, listen, we appreciate the love that you're giving us, but we did not expect this amount of love and it far exceeded it, which is what's causing these like servers to crash down and everything. 
So while it was a problem initially, and I know some of these people were pissed off that it didn't work right away, the signal is that it's kind of a good problem to have. There were so many people interested in it that they're willing to go there. People that already paid for it, I'm sure, aren't canceling. They're excited to get on this streaming service and see what it has. So we'll find out in the coming days exactly how many people really started subscribing and we'll get a better measure of its success. But the other interesting note about all of this is Disney Plus is the second high profile streaming service to launch in just the past two weeks. The other one was Apple TV, HBO Max and Peacock. That's the one that's coming out from NBC and Comcast. That's still going to be coming out later on. But just seeing how Disney Plus launched and Apple launched, you get to see a big difference in their strategies. Let's begin with the marketing, because remember, Disney also owns stuff like Hulu and ESPN, and they have regular TV stations like ABC. So they were putting commercials on nearly every platform all over the place. The marketing wasn't just style. There was substance, because when you look at something like Apple, there's a few things that seem interesting, like Dickinson and Morning Show. But those are things that we're not super aware of what they're going to be right now if you're not paying attention. But The Mandalorian, you have a good idea of what it's going to be just based off of the promotional pictures of it. If you're a Star Wars fan, you're going to want to watch this. And Apple debuted with just a handful of original series. Disney, same thing. They have their handful of things, but their real power comes in the vault and all the extra stuff that they own and they're putting out there. And they have tons and tons of stuff to go through. In preparation for this segment, you handed me an article with about 30 to 40 pages, which was just a list of things that are going to be on Disney Plus. And they're not just doing the like Disney greats. They're also putting in basically every property they've had. So there's going to be the straight to VHS sequels like The Return of Jafar that are going to be on there. (laughs) These are all the Disney animated sequels and spinoffs. So Return of Jafar, Aladdin, The King of Thieves, Who's Grand Adventure, The Search for Christopher Robin, just a bunch of things you might have never heard of. Because it went straight to video. Well, you might never have heard of them or you were like, oh, I remember this movie from a kid. I wonder why I don't think about this movie that much anymore. This serves as a reminder and almost as just a trip that Disney has taken from beginning to end. Because this thing is starting essentially from when Disney began, except maybe like the very first two things. They have movies in this thing that are from the 40s. As I mentioned, they have stuff in the vault, all the Disney classic movies. One of my favorite all times, Dumbo. That's from 1941, so that's going to be on there. Um, They're going to have Disney Plus original shows. Obviously, this is all the newer stuff. High School Musical, The Musical, The Series, which is kind of a funny office-style mockumentary take on uh, High School Musical. Porky Asks a Question. Obviously, The Mandalorian, The World According to Jeff Goldblum. These are the new things that they're going to be doing that sound great. And like you said, Tons of stuff to their catalog, all the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. It's going to be a pretty big juggernaut to beat once it gets going. And they're hoping to get over 100 million subscribers by 2025. So I don't doubt that they'll get there. Thank you, Victor. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright, 
and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.